Welcome to Conversations 360 Podcasts and this podcast series called Asia and the West. I'm your host, Susan Bird. On Asia and the West, we showcase people whose life, work, and experience shed light on what is taking place in and between these two critically important parts of our world. We're especially focused on China, but you'll hear from people with fascinating things to share about other parts of Asia as well. I first met Lorraine Justice at a TED conference where she was a speaker. She was terrific, and we got to know each other after meeting there. Lorraine is now Dean of the College of Imaging Arts and Sciences at Rochester Institute of Technology. When I met her, she was then director of the School of Design at Hong Kong's Polytechnic University, where she took PolyU to the top 30 such tech schools in the world within four years. She's also the author of China's Design Revolution, and she's been named one of the world's top 40 influential designers by ID Magazine. She presents internationally and consults on strategies for approaching the markets of mainland China. Her views on her life as an American in Asia, her experiences in mainland China, and how design has enjoyed a revolution in China, all of these I'm sure you're going to find fascinating. Now, I should tell you, you may hear some background noise in our conversation, but just know that they're an indication that these conversations are really not studio-based discussions, but unscripted, candid comments from people with lots to share about the transformational changes taking place between Asia and the West. You'll hear Lorraine tell what an adventure it was for her and her husband to pull up stakes and move to China. She said, for example... I had these odd pangs of, uh, why am I leaving the United States? So I, I knew it would be temporary, but I didn't know how, temp, you know how long I'd be there. So we, we literally put our American dream in storage in Atlanta for seven years. Lorraine also quickly learned the cultural differences she had to adjust to, and she names one of them here. Well, you notice that I start most of my sentences with I. That was one of the first things I realized that I did as a Westerner is how I-centric we are. It's, you know, we are, we are individuals acting as individuals, but in the East, it, you're really part of the fabric, and, and it's really about fitting in with the team, the culture, everybody getting credit, ideas that other people will support. It was just so vastly different from the United States ethic of the, I want to call us the the wild uh, pioneers. One of the things Lorraine found so remarkable was the way she was treated as an older woman in China. I think you'll find that interesting too, and you'll hear more about it in our conversation. And I found that very affirming that a, an older woman could pick up stakes and go to someplace like Hong Kong and China and really fully engage in meaningful conversations and not just be dismissed. And finally, she sums it up. The future is here. It's just uneven. <laughs> and uh, that is exactly what China is still like. So welcome to Conversation 360 Podcasts and this Asia and the West series, Lorraine. Thanks, Susan. Glad to be here. I'm delighted you're here. So let's just start at the beginning. How did you first get interested in Asia? Well, um, 
I was at a point in my career where uh, I was at Georgia Tech. I loved it. It was a great school, but I really felt as though I had done as much as I could do. And China was on the rise. China was always mysterious to me and most Americans because it was closed for so long. So I thought I had an opportunity to go over there and maybe affect the curriculum to get things like human factors in the design curriculum and sustainability and things like that. So you moved to Hong Kong in 2004, is that right? Yes. Okay, and I read somewhere that you said we sold our house, our car, and our furniture, but we didn't sell the American dream. That's right. What do you mean by that? We just put it in storage for a while. <laughs> <laughs> no, the American dream, my, my parents were, or my grandparents were immigrants coming here to the United States, and I had these odd pangs of, uh, why am I leaving the United States? So I, I knew it would be temporary, but I didn't know how, temp, you know how long I'd be there. So we, we literally put our American dream in storage in Atlanta for seven years. You also said, I thought I was coming east to learn about China, but I ended up knowing more about the West. Oh, absolutely. Tell me that. And sometimes painfully so. Aha. Uh -huh. Well, you notice that I start most of my sentences with I. <laughs> that was one of the first things I realized that I did as a Westerner is how I-centric we are. It's, you know, we are, we are individuals acting as individuals. But in the East, it, you're really part of a fabric and... And it's really about fitting in with the team, the culture, everybody getting credit, ideas that other people will support. It was just so vastly different from the United States ethic of the, I want to call us the, the wild uh, pioneers. <laughs> You made quite an impact from the time of your arrival, taking the lead of Poly U School of Design. What were your biggest challenges in that role, beyond learning how not to be so eye-centric? Well, what was surprising is the challenge that I didn't have, and that was being an older woman and and having, you know, in, in the United States, it's very difficult sometimes to get some of the young corporation folks to listen to anyone over the age of 40. But I found that when I went to China, um, not only did they listen, they were hanging on every word and very interested in what I had to say. And I found that very affirming that a, an older woman could pick up stakes and go to someplace like Hong Kong and China and really fully engage in meaningful conversations and not just be dismissed. That's important. <clears throat> Thank you. I, I think that's, that's really interesting. We may want to come back to that. I know you led the successful effort to secure a U.S. $35 million 
grant from the Hong Kong Jockey Club, it was, right, to help build the Innovation Tower by Pritzker Prize-winning architect Zaha Hadid. How did you make that happen? Well, I did. Here's my Hong Kong training. I didn't make it happen. There was a whole team who worked on that. And I have to give credit to Mr. Victor Lowe. He was the driving force. He was also the driving force behind the Hong Kong Design Center and the Science Park and uh, so many design and art-related places in Hong Kong. Uh, anyway, a remarkable man, and I think Hong Kong owes a great debt to him. But he was, um, he was involved with our university at the time, and he pushed to get a new design building for our school. Our facilities were not the best, and he really um, supported that. I had written a proposal. We had a chance to approach the Jockey Club, uh, and there were several ideas across campus that were presented from engineering and so on. But what I, I thought about the Jockey Club, which is essentially a gambling, it's, a, it's the horse race mm -hmm. uh, mecca there in um, Hong Kong, and I thought, well, I'm sure they would want to do something for society. And, and I was right, because I coupled that design building with a project called the Design for Social Innovation. And so the Jockey Club liked that idea. And the thing that was amazing is the building was already in progress the, the idea, and the Jockey Club still decided to fund it for $35 million U.S. And then they also funded the Design for Social Innovation Center, I think, at uh, $4 to $5 million. So that was exciting. Uh, and, and I got an education in architecture. We visited the 10 top architects in the world at the time and uh, ran a great competition. How thrilling. Now, you also started several enterprises in China. Tell us about those. Well, one that I was extremely fond of was a project that we did in Kunming in southwest China, where the, a lot of the minorities live in the mountain villages and so on. And once again, I, I was going to help, but I ended up learning more than I could imagine in, in profound ways. Uh, mistakes and everything. Um, so what we did is we teamed up with the local government there to start a center to help the villages. And we were going to, to, do, to do what? To do products, sustainable products that could be sold to have the money returned back to the villages. And it, as we got into that project, it became very apparent that it was more, much more complex than that. Um, here we were looking at products they could design or build out of, let's say, a wooden product that would be made for the West or, or tourists to buy something from that region, uh, but really, what happened is 
it had the potential. I looked further steps out and realized that some of the villages were competing with each other and maybe could possibly steal ideas. And so in all actuality, if one village had become very prosperous creating, say, these wooden pieces, um, another village would try to duplicate that and maybe cut down their entire forest that was in their region to do that. And so I realized immediately that things had to stop as far as just going in there and advising on design for the West. It was a much, much more complicated. And at that time, I had met, um, um, oh my gosh, she's the most amazing woman who works with animals, and I'm blanking on her name. That's okay, we'll figure she, it out. She had, had given a talk and explained how, uh, you know, you think you want to bring prosperity to an area but what you want to really do is bring prosperity to an area so they can maintain the habitats around their cities and villages so the animals have a place to live. So she found that by helping a place be prosperous, they would leave their habitats alone. They wouldn't cut down their forests or they wouldn't you know, do something radical to their landscape in order to prosper. So it was an amazing education. And so I always caution designers, look several steps ahead from just trying to, um, just trying to do good in the situation. And yes, it was Jane Goodall. Um, she, the most amazing person, and um, her insights actually impacted what I was doing in China and found it very helpful. Interesting. So in 2012, then, MIT published your book, China's Design Revolution. So how did that come about? Well, um, I just, I saw the impact of design in China. And oh, it was open season for uh, anything. And there was the copying, and there were the failed designs, and there were the manufacturers who who didn't want to pay for design. They didn't understand design. And it, it was just, um, it was like the, the saying, the future is here, it's just uneven. <laughs> and uh, that is exactly what China is still like, uh, I believe. And so when I was able to do this book, I was able to interview some pretty amazing experts on art and art in China mostly and I was curious about the art in China because to the average Westerner's eye it looked like the art had stayed the same for 2,000 years when in actuality there was a sameness to it for a reason and it's so vastly different than what a Westerner would do for art. I was just fascinated. Uh, they paint in certain genres, four genres. They don't have any violence in their artwork. It's not about, um, it's, it's more about harmony and, and subtle, subtle, very subtle types of inspiration that appear in the artwork. And you know, when you look at the Western artist, you can't go anywhere with your career unless you are doing uh, 
things that are so, I want to say, um, shocking or new or, you know, you just, you have to have something fresh and unique and original. And so in the Chinese art for thousands of years, which was around their, their creativity, that was the last thing they wanted. Uh, so it's a complete reversal and a complete flip of what we think of creative. Now you also, I don't at Ted Yu, because I heard you speak in 2015, you said China has a thousand design programs at the moment and the U.S. has 53. Yes. So it sounds like an explosive. It is very explosive. Yes, and uh, I was just talking about industrial design or product design programs in wow. that talk. When you look at where, you know, if you include all the fields of design, graphic and interior and digital, it's the programs are, there's probably at least 40 to 50,000. Really? Yes. So in this book, you talk of, China being on the verge of a design revolution, that's the title in fact, caused by this third generation of the People's Republic that came, people who came of age during China's opening up period of the 80s and now are striving for fame, fortune, and self-expression. And that's happening at the same time, you wrote this book, let's see, in 2012, that China's government was making massive investments in design and innovation at the local and national levels apparently to stimulate economic growth and also establish China as a global creative power. Yes. Now, the book was published in 2012. Have developments in China's economy changed that scenario? Is the government still funding such ambitious projects? Well, that's interesting. I, I don't believe that, yes, yes, there's definite, I feel a definite change, uh, even though some people may think that it's slight. I really don't. I think, and it's not about the economy as much as it's about the ideology and the government and, and them wanting to protect what they believe is Chinese and not have as much Western influence. So when you go back to the opening up period, what that meant is they were opening up to the ideas of the world, and it was a wonderful thing. Now, they also learned how to manufacture everything. And, um, you know, the people from the United States and Europe went over there and taught them how to manufacture everything from shoes to watches to everything during that opening up period. But now um, I'm seeing a little bit of closing up in China. The, the government has changed, um, different leaders. These leaders were teenagers, some of them were teenagers during the Cultural Revolution. And so we're, we're hearing some strong rhetoric come out of China um, in the last two years. That has a chilling effect. Yes. Yes, interesting things like they're not as open to Western influences. So you also mentioned China's fourth generation, the people now in their teens and twenties. So how do they fit into this picture? Well, they're all they're still um, in the opening up stage, but what they're finding now there's a I 
correlate this to the people in um, East Berlin and how they had to deal with that opening up. And all of a sudden, they had to pay for their own apartments. They had to pay for their own cars. The milk went up in price. Um, all of those changes. And so while this younger, or what I want to say, fourth generation in China is experiencing a lot of personal freedoms, they're also experiencing a lot of personal stress. Um, all of a sudden, they're the first generation who has to buy their own apartment and their own car and find a school for their kid and on and on. And, uh, you know, meanwhile, their parents and grandparents were provided for by the, the government. So big, That's a profound difference. Yeah. Big difference. Now, you said you wrote your book for a Western audience so mm -hmm. they could understand issues such as creativity and innovation in mainland China. So... In a way, Lorraine, you've really had a role in shaping this new conversation that's taking place. How would you describe that? What What is the communication now or the conversation going on, at least in the design field, between China and the West? Well, it's it's fascinating. Um, the, the China designers, they really want to design great products and sustainable products and and do the best they can but their manufacturers aren't there yet they're not hiring them yet in mass in other words there's kind of a flood of designers on the market and i like in this era to what we experienced in design in the 60s and 70s where we had a lot of great designers ready to go but uh, they just weren't ready for, they didn't understand design and how it could really enhance a product or a service or a space or whatever. And so the, the de generation of designers in China right now have to convince the company owners and manufacturers. Now, some of them get it right away. Um, they do. And digital media actually is leading the way. But um, architecture, product design, all of those other areas there, it's going to still be a struggle for the designers there. And especially if the government, for government projects, if they perceive design as being more of a Western activity or influence. And so, you know, they won't, they won't fund something that maybe could be better designed. It will be more, you know, stripped down. So does that mean that there's a market for those young people who maybe can't find work in China right now? Are Western companies looking to them for design experience, or are there so many Westerners that are in that field that that's not an opportunity? Well, what's happened is our, I could speak for our American companies um, in particular, they are looking in China for Chinese designers who understand the culture. And so that those are the types of hires they want to make. Understand the Chinese culture or the yes. Western culture? No, okay. Actually, both if they can. That would be great. But mostly the Chinese culture because the Western companies need help in assessing um, Chinese needs and wants. You, you know, 
the, the other thing I learned is you just can't take Western consumer research and run it in China. It does not work. You have to modify it every single time. Give me an example of that. Okay. Well, um, there was one project uh, with a co an American company wanted to run focus groups <laughs> about their products, and so we got we got you know random people together. And and I was I was pretty much saying you know this really isn't going to work. Um, these people are shy; they're not going to talk in front of each other about especially personal likes or dislikes um, and that kind of thing. So first, it was the the men and women women wouldn't speak in front of each other. Then it was the older and younger people wouldn't speak in front of each other. It was just at every turn. So I, I devised this method um, called bring a friend. And so <laughs> we had to set up uh, sessions with maybe two people who knew each other. And then they would discuss the product. Brilliant. And... Um, so I had to devise a lot of on-the-run consumer research techniques for China. And, uh, you know, interviews are impossible because they're worried, you know, they're going to get in trouble or their boss will hear them or, you know, on and on. So, yeah. Interesting. So now that you're back home, has your perspective ch shifted at all? Well, um, I did have... Reverse culture shock. <laughs> um, I didn't realize, you know, being, even though Hong Kong is not as homogenous as mainland China, um, it was still, it was still odd to be a Westerner in the East and constantly be surrounded by the Chinese people. So when I came back here, I was struck by the diversity once again of the United States. It was was a shock. I mean, literally, people are here from every corner of the earth. And that's still not the case in China. And um, and so that was surprising. So when what do you think in terms of how this conversation, if we can call it one, it's probably many, many conversations that are taking place going both ways between China and the West, how is that conversation going to continue to develop in the future? I would this seems in some ways a vector or a turning point in terms of the Chinese government, um, people getting more sophisticated. How did you predict, say, five years from now, what will this all look like? Well, I, first of all, I think there's going the next few years, um, while the Chinese government kind of communicates how and what, which ways they're going to do things, I think it's really going to be company to company, um, you know, maybe U.S. and European companies working with companies in China, again, that, that kind of thing, because I don't see a lot of government opportunity that have kind of cut back on a lot of the centers and or, or even building um, that ha that they had been doing in China, a lot of the creative parks and those types of things. Um, I have to just hope they survive this next era in China. And they were places where 
designers could go and set up their own company and at lower rent, and it was a chance to have them be an entrepreneur. So we'll see. And you think that may have been chilled? I think a bit. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But the Chinese people are resilient. They will, and especially the designers, they'll find a way, hopefully, to get their products on the market and, um, you know, engage in the rest of the world as well. They'll have to figure that out. So is there anything I haven't asked you that you think is especially of note from your experience there and now back here? You've got such an interesting perspective. Anything that you'd like to share about? Well, I have to tell you how important it is to understand the culture more. Anyone who thinks they can understand all of China, um, that's impossible because it's so big and so diverse. But there are certain things that the rest of the world can learn and one important thing is how to speak to the Chinese as a country. And I don't believe we've done that successfully. How do you think we should talk to China as a country? Well, I'll give you an example. Um, you know, the hard-handedness of, of the United States saying something like, I want to see Beijing do this. Well, first of all, the, the I is there. Second of all, making a reference to Beijing rather than the Chinese government or the Chinese party, that's kind of insulting. It's a little bit of an offhand. It would be as though uh, the UK or Germany said, I want to see the US do this and this and this. And rather than, than just simply saying, um, you know, we're interested in this area, would you be interested in discussing this? And what are ways that you think you could benefit from it? I mean, there are a million other ways to approach a conversation with people across the world other than, I want to see you do this. And, and um, you lose a lot of people in that way. Do you think they're more, that the Chinese in general are more open to learning about us than we are about them? Well, I was, I have to tell you, I'm so disappointed with the West um, about their lack of knowledge of the East. It was so funny when I told people I was moving to Hong Kong, I don't know how many times I heard, I didn't know you could speak Japanese. Seriously. Seriously. And we had a friend who was <laughs> shipping their dog to Hong Kong and and someone had written um, Japanese on, you know, it was just... Post office. Yes, and it's... <laughs> so anyway, that was a little bit disheartening. <laughs> I, I did read recently that there are more people in China studying English <sighs> than there are English-speaking people in the world. I believe it, it uh, yes. And... So the ambition to be global and to be, to be involved is, is very high. Um, whether that's true on this side of the, of the world is another question. Right. I think your, your, your comment is so interesting about the use of the word I, because it also is how we talk about we in terms of just we, that we see ourselves as so you, the world is U.S.-centric. 
and so many that when you live in a place like that, you realize, no, no, actually, we've got it a little bit wrong. It's a, it's a bigger pie than that. Well, this is great. I, I so appreciate your, your joining us. And uh, again, Lorraine Justice. If this is the first time you're listening to Asia and the West podcast, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. There are plenty more conversations with fascinating people from where this came. And please rate and review us on iTunes. As you may know, iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more credit we get, the more people can discover us. And please tell your friends. Word of mouth is a powerful way to spread the word about the Conversation 360 podcast and this Asia and the West series. There's more information on our website, www.conversation360podcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at Conv360Podcast, that's C-O-N-V 360 Podcast, and my personal Twitter is at Susan W. Bird, spelled B-I-R-D. Thanks for listening.